it seems that not a week goes by where we're not seeing a headline that is calling for justice or peace in an attempt to allow everyone to be happy, for everyone just to finally get along. Well, today we're going to learn what it takes to live in peace, find justice, and ultimately have joy. Jesus directly addresses this surprising lens through which we need to view the world as his third point in this Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are nine points that Jesus preached to us and shared with us on what it means to be blessed. Now, the word blessed in the Greek is makarios, which has several different uh, definitions. One of them means incredibly fortunate, favored, but the one I like the most is godlike. To be like God, to be blessed, there are some categories of things that we must do, observe, and must materialize and manifest in our lives if we're truly going to be blessed like God wants. The Sermon on the Mount is actually the longest recorded message that Jesus ever gave. Three chapters in the book of Matthew, you can find them also companionized in Luke, but there's 110 verses. Now, the reason that we have to revisit these often the reason that we have to be reminded of these things is that because it's so dense, because it's so theologically rich, because there is so much content to this sermon, we have to immerse ourselves again and again in bite-sized chunks so that we can truly take in the meaning of this Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes. And, and here's what I've experienced in my own life is that I may hear something today but I may listen to it a week from now. I may receive a message today, but a year from now, when I'm going through a different struggle in life, then the light bulb goes off, that aha moment comes, and I say, that's what Jesus meant when he said. That's what someone was dealing with when they walked through that valley. Now I get it. And so when we immerse ourselves again and again in this great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, depending on our life circumstances, we may receive it a little bit differently. Listen. God's word never changes, but we change. And so as we change, as we mature, as we develop, as we get experience, as we get life experience behind us, now we start to see through a different prism, a different lens, what it is that Jesus was trying to say, what Jesus was teaching to us. Let me just read to you Matthew 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated with his disciples, his disciples came to him, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And here's the third one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now let me define two things there, meek and earth. The meek are those who have yielded their will to the master. When you're meek, that doesn't mean weak. It means power under control. Power that is reserved for the right time and the right purpose. Being meek literally means to yield my will to the will of the master. The word earth here is translated land or the, the environment, the land, the, the place where you're treading, the, the, the environment where you walk, the, the place where you have been given habitation of. So blessed are those who yield their will when we talk about meekness. We can see this as a characteristic of Jesus' life. And I want to look at, at three of those markers today, but I just want to kind of open it up with a, 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 maybe a story that I can reflect to you. About three years ago, 
Holly and I were out of town. We were in, in Dallas at a conference, just the two of us, and, and I was really looking forward to this evening's uh, conference as, as one of my favorite speakers was going to be there. Pastor Craig Rochelle was going to be there sharing with the audience and, and with the, the congregation that night, and there were pastors from all around the country that were there. And we got there just about time that the service was starting, and so we slipped into the back, and we sat all the way as far as we can in the back. Now, I know some of you back row sitters, you can appreciate that this morning. I'm just like you when I'm not here. I'd sit all the way in the back. And so they have all these cameras going around, and, and, and for, the, for the production part of it, they want to make sure that the, the, the audience is as, as full in the front as possibly can be. And so they go back and they, they ask Holly and I if we would like to sit a little bit closer to the front to kind of fill in the gaps. And being a pastor, of course, I know how important that is. And I said, yeah, I'll accommodate that. I'll go ahead and I'll move out of my premium seat in the back where I can slip out early where I can talk to my neighbor and nobody really hears me. They still hear you. But I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll go up front. In fact, it felt a little bit like an honor to do this. And, and, you know, Holly looks at me and I look at her and the usher's there and she's like, let's do this. And so we go on up front and we get sat right in the very middle of the second row. I look around and I'm like, hey, there's Pastor Michael Todd. I could almost reach out and touch him. That's awesome. Look over there. There's Pastor Craig Rochelle's wife. That's awesome. I mean, all these like, like heroes of the faith that I have, I'm looking at them and they're within eyeshot. They're, I can almost reach out and touch them. It's like, you can feel the anointing, right? It's awesome. We, we go through the first worship song. We go through the second. We're clapping our hands. And then the lady that is about three seats down comes and she says, oh, I'm sorry, but my kids are on the stage and they're going to have to come back and sit with us during the message. You guys are going to have to move. Now, I just about lost my religion because I wanted to tell her, lady, you don't know that the ushers set me here. And I made that long walk of fame to get down here. And in my mind, I'm thinking I'm going to have to make the walk of shame to go back to my seat, my real seat, the one I picked out originally. And I'm having all this range of emotions now because I'm thinking, who are you to tell me that I have to move? Little did I know that she was related to the pastor of the church, and so she was going to get <laughs> she was going to get her seat back for her kids. But I just yielded and I said, okay, we'll do it. And so we we kindly slipped out like we had to go to the bathroom or something like that. Sorry. I just need to go ahead and get, you know, we got out and we sat back there and I was so dejected when I had to be humiliated, humbled to sit in the back. Now, why would I have to feel that feeling? Because on the inside of us, there is this self-importance. There is this self-exaltation. There is this sense that, I don't know, as one pastor said it, you turn on the lights and just about everybody turns into Katy Perry. Like everybody wants to be in the lights. We have this desire to be heard, to be seen, to be understood, to have a premium seat. But the way of Jesus and the way of meekness is that I yield my will to the will of the master. Therefore, we can humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, or we can allow life circumstances to humble us. Your choice, humble yourself or be humbled. And so as we look at this beatitude, let us recognize that meekness is not weakness. It is power under control and it is power invested in another. A meek person will know when they can invest that power into someone else, namely invested into 
the will of God. Here are some markers of meekness that work. Unless I, your Lord, wash your feet, you have no part with me. You can't even enter into my kingdom unless you allow me to serve you in this way. And see, that makes us uncomfortable because we don't like to be in the debt of another person, do we? We like to do it on our own. We have been taught and trained in our culture that you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You just need to work harder. You need to be more diligent. That you can do this thing on your own. You don't need anybody else. We have such an independent streak as Americans, don't we? We have such a reliance on nobody. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. And yet when somebody serves us, it puts us in a way in their O. We don't like to be in debt. We don't want to be owing somebody something. It makes us uncomfortable. And let me ask you this question. What's easier for you to do? Be the giver or be the receiver? Most of us like to be the giver, don't we? We like to be in the position of blessing somebody else, of, of being in the position. Why? Because that is really, in a sense, a superior position in our mindset. But Jesus flips the script as he often does. And he teaches us that even though it's more blessed to give than to receive, you must become a receiver. Because you cannot give of God's grace, God's goodness, and God's mercy until you have received of God's grace, God's goodness, and his mercy. You can't give something you don't have. So receive of God and be a giver to others. This is meekness. This is yielding my will to the will of the Father. And most of us would rather always and only be in the giving position. But it is Holly to come to the stage and for myself. And, and we stood there on stage and he brought out these most beautifully handmade garments that his wife had made to bless us, to give to us. Now, I did not need that traditional African garb. I don't know that I've ever worn it beyond that time that I kind of modeled it for him. But it was dignifying of him that we with graciousness received what he had diligently packed and stowed and put away that his wife had made with the labor of her hands that they had gone to their own expense to make. Even though it didn't fit with our tradition or our culture, I saw in that, in our congregation saw in that, the desire that they wanted to bless us to give. And someone in your life wants to bless you. They want to give you something. A little girl just a, a few weeks ago came up to me after a copy. And this week, your daughter's note to me and her coloring is going in with my hard copy. It will be preserved for as long as I have these files. He shared it with her and said that made her day. How can you make somebody's day? Being meek, being mild, being giving, and letting them receive from you is a way that you can make someone's day. That's joy. Let's talk about justice. Justice is a word that is bantered around so often right now, especially in our culture. We hear justice from all circles and all corners and, and all around. And I wanna tell you that justice is vitally important in our day. That there are so many unjust things that are happening in our day that we as believers in Jesus should be the ones to cry loud and spare not and lift up our voice to advocate for those who are being treated unjustly. And sometimes those are the people in our ranks, and sometimes those are people across the aisle in other ranks and other statuses of life. 
But here is what is commonly called for in our day is social justice. Now, I'm not against social justice, justice being done in social circles and social squares, but here is the problem with social justice, is that it is determined by society, which is made up of people. Therefore, it is not necessarily fair. It's certainly not unbiased. Social justice, because of evildoers, and somebody just needs to ingest that for a minute. Do not fret get all worried because of evildoers. It says, nor be envious of workers of iniquity. It's very easy to turn on your television screen today and to look at someone who is getting ahead, someone who is vastly wealthy, someone who's wildly beyond your imagination of riches and think, ah, I wish I was like them. I I wish I could go to those places. I wish I could travel like that. Do you? Do you really? You may on the surface, but do you know what they had to do to get that? Do you know what some people had to do? Envy of workers of iniquity is not where we should be. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither like the green herb. Look at what verse three says. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on what? On his faithfulness. Feed. You know, you can feed on the faithfulness of God. You can go back in your memory, your mind's eye, and God was faithful then, and God was faithful then, and God, and God is faithful now. And God will be faithful tomorrow. I'm going to feed on God's faithfulness. Look at verse 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I love this verse. And and people have have used this verse for years out of context to try to conjure up a need or a a want. And they've, they've used this as lay claim on something to say, well, I just want this, so God's going to give me the desire of my heart. No, you've got to read the first part of the verse first. Delight yourself in the Lord. When you delight yourself in God, when you're feeding on God's faithfulness, then all of a sudden your heart is steady, it is anchored, it is sure, and you are not going to have evil, ungodly desires when you're feeding on the faithfulness of God. Therefore, when you delight yourself in God and there is a desire, it says that he gave you that desire. Now we think of this, God's going to give me the thing I desire. No, God gives you the desire when you delight yourself in him. And when you're delighting yourself in God, it's not about getting your Mercedes Benz. It's about what kinds of things do I, through the godly lens of my life, see that God is doing. It may be that God blesses you with enough wealth to be able to drive a Mercedes Benz or or any kind of car that you want. There is nothing wrong with having things as long as things don't have you. Meekness means I yield my will to the Lord. Commit your ways also to the Lord, trust in him, and he will bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as a light and your justice. Who's justice? Your justice. You know, you're due for justice. He will bring forth your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who brings the wicked schemes to pass, it's so easy to sit down and to think about all of the things just in the last couple of years that have hoodwinked our culture, have pulled the wool over the eyes of so many in our society. And many of those things right now are starting to come to full fruition. We're starting to see the veil is being opened up. We're starting to see through the shadows. The fog is clearing. We're starting to see, oh, that was what went right. Oh, that was happening under the scene. That was the undertow. And we can start fretting about people getting away with things, but it's not good English. It's good preaching. Ain't nobody getting away with nothing. 
God keeps good records. Don't think that they're getting away with something. Justice delayed is not justice denied. God does not forget. He's not slack concerning his promises, as some would count slackness. But we serve a just God. It says to rest in God. Verse 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, for it only causes harm. Somebody needs to ingest that today. Don't fret. Don't get yourself all bound up in worry. It only causes harm. This is the psalmist instructing us in the ways of life. This could be written for our day right now, but this was written thousands and thousands of years ago. Why? Because the human heart doesn't change a whole lot. Yeah, we've advanced in knowledge and learning and understanding. We can put a man on the moon, but we can't even take care of the desires of our own heart and the things that are happening in our own homes because the human heart doesn't change a whole lot. We need to immerse ourselves in this book and if we will start reading this book, then this book will start reading us. And we'll be transparent before God and we'll know the ways of the Lord. For evildoers shall soon be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Now that sounds awfully familiar to this beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What's it say here? Those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. That's humility. For yet a little while, and the wicked will be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but you'll find it no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Jesus borrowed directly from this. Someone in Hollywood, someone in politics, someone on the national stage is going to come and finally write what is wrong. No, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. God fights our battles. And we have the promise of justice if we will take heart. Basically, what he's saying is that those who are slugging it out, getting ahead by force, taking control right now, they're going to have to give it all up to the meek. Read James chapter 5. He says, Weep and howl, you rich man, for the tragedies, the turmoils that's going to come upon you. He says, your garments are moth-eaten, your riches are corroded, and they are a testament against you. But be patient, therefore, brethren, for the coming of the Lord, and the Lord is coming. The farmer waits for the precious harvest. He waits for the seed to, to sprout. And, and we are in a waiting pattern right now. We are in a, in a pattern of just watching and waiting, watching and waiting, trusting and obeying, watching and waiting, letting our hearts be established in the Lord. Just because it looks like they're getting ahead doesn't mean that they're gonna finish the race first. And we need to take heart that this world, dear Christian soldier, is not your home, but the earth is. This world, man's schemes, the chaos of the world, the world system is not your home, but the earth is. For the meek shall inherit the land, the earth. What's he mean? John Stott, the great Bible theologian said this, the godless may boast and throw their weight. Is that a good promise? Look at Revelation 21. Let me read this to you. It says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth in Western Christianized culture to only focus on what happens after our immediate impending death. 
Should the Lord tarry, every one of us will go by way of the grave. And when we die, we go to one of two places, either eternity with God or eternity in a godless, turmoil, torture, terrible state. But just getting to heaven when you die is not all there is. Heaven is like this intermediate holding place until finally Christ returns and the dead will rise just like Jesus did. His resurrection is the first fruits, the promise of those being resurrected. I often ask people, when did your eternal life begin? It's not a trick question. It began the moment you said yes to Jesus. Eternal life happens when you say yes to Jesus. You know you're going to live forever somewhere. And so when your body goes into the grave, it's not going to stay there. There is a great resurrection. But then there is also this concept in some people's minds that when we die, we go to heaven and we gain this heavenly harp and we're just going to be angels on clouds playing our harps all day long. That's not the way it is. There is going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and you are going to have a vocation, a disposition, a way in which you live in these new heavens and this new earth. And there is going to be a time where there's no more and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Would anybody just like to have a little bit more peace? They should be found out instead of measuring ourselves with others to be meek today. We're going to bow our heads to dignify the others in godly justice with our hands over our heart. What do we commonly do in our culture when we put our hands over our heart is we will make a pledge. It is a pledge of allegiance, a pledge of allegiance to God. Because in our culture and in our nation, in the American experience, we say this, I pledge allegiance. I pledge my allegiance. I pledge. One nation under God. Where's God? In our pledge, God is first and foremost. Our nation is under God. One nation under God. It should be indivisible and it should have liberty and it should have justice for all. Where do you think that they got that from? They didn't come up with that on their own. The founders didn't have the wherewithal to come up with that on their own. They found it based upon the principles, our Judeo-Christian values informing their conscience, causing them to view justice through the lens of God. Your peace will be fulfilled And Jesus gave us this beatitude to bring peace to our hearts, to have an abundance of peace. So here in our closing moments together, I want you to do this. Put your hand over your heart. And I want you to repeat this after me. Lord, I need you. I confess my sins. Things I have done, as well as things I've left undone. I now yield all of me to you. I yield my will. I yield my problems, my failures, my hopes, and my dreams. Jesus, I make you my king. I choose your will for my life. 
right now, even before I know what it is. I receive the inheritance you promised for me in this life and the next. In Jesus' name, amen.